Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. With a career in the creative industry spanning 15 years, Angela Weichel has fulfilled multiple roles. Talent agent, music industry consultant, journalist, DJ, and radio show host, to name a few. She is also the director of the South African chapter of She Said So. Always striving to be an innovator and change maker, her latest role as the culture and network manager for Levi's House of Strauss Africa offers her the opportunity to utilize her accumulated skills in one environment. Where there is an Ange, there is a way. Hi, Ange. <laughs> Hi. I had to squeeze that last line in because it's. <laughs> I always put like something at the end of my email signatures on like certain of my email accounts yeah. to see how far people read down, because you know, like. <laughs> yes. You know, like how people go. Oh, can I please have your phone number? And it's in your email signature, and that kind of like lack of comprehension skills and paying attention to detail says a lot about a person. Mm. And when it's a business discussion, your lack of attention to detail is very glaring warning of how things are going to go. Yeah. If you go through the effort of making an email signature, it's because you don't want people to ask you those questions constantly. So my one email address has Jack of all trades, master of the universe. Wonderful. <laughs> and then my other one has where there's an Ange, there's a way. Um, and I'm proud of both of those. And every now and then someone will reply in, uh, with that. And I'm like, good job. You read the whole email. Love to see it. <laughs> Were you ever a copywriter? I started out doing like music reviews. I think it must be like 2015. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the way that it happened was I lived in this digs in Tamboerskloof with a couple of my friends. And I was playing lots of shows. And my one friend... He liked to go to shows, but he was also a homebody. So he wouldn't go to like all the parties. He'd only go to like very specific shows. But then I would come home at like two, three in the morning, drunk after playing. And like, he'd be up like watching TV or something, or it'd be the next morning when we're having coffee and he'd be like, Oh, how was last night? And I'd just give him like a play by play yeah. of the whole party. And he was like, you should totally write about shows because I love how you explain to me. It feels like I was there. Yeah. And I don't feel like I missed out on the party at all. Or I do feel like I missed out on it, but that's a good thing because now you've shown me that it was a great time and I should have been there. So then I was like, cool, but I was also like, it was that crazy time in music, South African music journalism, where it was prolific because you had things like Mahala and all of that, but people were super scathing and critical. Yes. That whole freedom, freedom of speech like went way too far. Some people were like super mean and I got stuck in that for a bit as well. I was a bit of a dick sometimes, <laughs> but I was young, you know. It was an interesting time. And I started writing under a pseudonym because I was playing so much. I didn't want people to think, oh, I'm like judging everyone while I'm playing these shows with them and all that kind of stuff. So I just created like a pseudonym. But I was also worried about getting judged about my writing because I wasn't trained in any yeah. way. You know, being a an avid reader my whole life and I like always had lots of notebooks, but I didn't do any training and I wasn't particularly amazing in English at school, you know, and I sent a piece into LMG 
Yeah. And it was still when John Monsoon was there. Yeah, I remember. And also John Monsoon, I'd known from like since I was a teenager. So I was also like not trying to look like an idiot in front of John Monsoon. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the feedback was super positive. And he was like, do you really want to stay anonymous? Like, honestly, I made like a whole email account for it, everything. Like no one knew it was me. Yeah. And I was like, just for now, can I please stay anonymous? And then we'll see how it goes. And I wrote for like a couple of years under that pseudonym. John even got me work with other publications aside from LMG writing under my pseudonym. Yeah. And then when Techler took over LMG, I had like done a few things randomly under my own name. And she called me for a meeting and she was like, listen, I really want you to write for LMG. And I was like, well, um, I'm going to break it to you now because you're the new editor, but I actually have been writing for LMG for like the last few years. And she looked at me and she's like, I knew it was you. She's like, I couldn't prove it. She's like, but I had this feeling and I knew it was you. But then I didn't tell anyone else. Like there's maybe like five people that know. I'm not even going to say the name in this podcast because I don't need oh that God. kind of energy in my life right now. <laughs> I don't think there were a lot of people who wrote under pseudonyms for LMG, so someone will work it out. But it was so funny because then I was like, cool, I'll write under my own name now. I'd like had the practice. I was super confident in my writing. Mm. And then, yeah, I worked for, for LMG up until the end. Yeah. And then written stuff for like Red Bull and a couple of other people. Techler and Tex in the City kind of gave me the opportunity to interview like artists from all over the world. And we got a lot of exclusives because of the caliber that the site was putting out. So I really had like amazing opportunities, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. But then I got super busy and I had to put that all on the back burner. So last major thing that I wrote was a review of Search Festival, the New Year's Eve festival from the end of 2019. Because mm -hmm. it was for Resident Advisor. And I was like, I've always wanted to write for resident advisor, so I'll do it, you know? Yeah. But I, so I kind of like came out of semi-retirement. So now I like help people with their bios and do that kind of stuff and do like short pieces, which is easier for me because then it's like maybe two hours out of a day, whereas like committing to long story pieces needs like a lot of time that I unfortunately don't always have which is a good thing. I like being busy, but I haven't thrown the writing away. I just am more discerning and more careful about my schedule when I do it. Totally. And I mean, time, the older we get feels scarcer and scarcer, but you are mm. totally into music, right? Like the most. <laughs> <laughs> How did it begin? What drew you here? I was a kid and it started with my parents' vinyls, as, mm -hmm. as simple as that. And then it grew into me having my own cassette deck with like the double cassettes where I was like recording off the radio and then bouncing to another disc and making all of these mixtapes. And then I studied sound engineering after high school. Nice. I was a live music engineer for like two years. And it was wild because I got to mix like bands that I'd been listening to like the whole of high school. I remember I got to work with Martin Rocker and the Sick Shop and I nearly died. <laughs> It was yes. such a crazy time, you know, from the live sound that got kind of like, because that's like a quite a hectic job to have, not only for your ears, but also physically. There's a reason why mostly men do live sound and are like gear guys, because it's a lot of heavy lifting and it's very dirty and it's long hours because you have to be there long before the show and you're there long after the show. I had this moment where I was like, this is not 
the glamorous picture I had because in my mind I was like going to be working in like a really amazing studio and, and doing like recordings and stuff like that. But there just wasn't an opportunity for that. So I had to work because my dad was very strict. Like, this is what you studied. This is what you have to work in. You know, he wasn't really the guy who was like, oh, you can do whatever you want. He was like, we paid for your diploma. You have to be a sound engineer. So I pushed through for like two years. And then I actually had the opportunity to start working at the armchair theater, like the original one. Well, with Gil. Yeah, with Gil. Yeah, Gil was my boss. I was one of the managers and I worked there up until um, it shut down and Gil sold. But while I was at the armchair was when I discovered DJing. Yeah. Didn't really understand. I knew that DJs existed, but obviously didn't really have like the social media and internet like we do have now. So like when you discovered something cool, it was usually because someone else was doing it. All I ever did was like, I made lots of playlists and I was always sharing music with people. And like that love of music just permeated everything that I did. At one point, someone was like, well, why don't you just DJ? You already make like the playlist that everyone listens to. And that's how it started. Oh, wonderful. And 15 years later, here we are. And I don't think there's a single day goes by that I don't listen to music for at least a couple of hours a day. Like I enjoy silence when the moment requires it. Yeah. But I can never relate to people who go, oh, whatever's playing in the background is fine kind of thing. I'm just like, how are you not emotionally affected by what is playing right now? Whether it's good or bad, how is this not affecting you? As far back as I can remember, I've had like an emotional reaction to music. Yeah. I want to hear the story behind She Said So. So globally, She Said So is like a community that consists of women and gender minorities from all sectors of the music industry. So like record labels, artist management, booking agencies, technology platforms, creative agencies, like across the board. And there's 18 chapters all around the world and together they help form global. And I mean, it's so difficult because obviously the the global chapter is like like far ahead and it's a combination of everyone around the world There's a lot that you want to achieve as a local chapter, but obviously you need to gear it based on resources and what the region needs. And that's very positive because what I was able to do with the South African chapter is include the creative industries across the board. Because as you know, the South African music industry is very small Mm -hmm. in its infancy, but all of the creative practices and disciplines cross paths so often that it doesn't make sense to exclude other people and just make it a music group when you know that photographers and designers and all this kind of people always are working together on projects. Yeah. You can't be like, oh, I'm part. It's like, it almost felt like counterintuitive to be like, oh, you can't be part of this group because you don't make music or play music. And I, I thought that would be like the wrong footing to get started on. Mm. So then I said to them, is this okay if we make it inclusive for everyone? And we were also the first chapter to specify it's women and LGBTQI plus individuals because it was started as a woman-only network and gender minorities were brought into the mix once the network was established. And because of that, we can have broader conversations and include more people. But more importantly, it makes it easier for us to include the other networks and organizations that are also working in South Africa, you know? Yeah. And every time a new one gets introduced, all these tiny underground crews pop up who do their own parties and are looking for support and all that kind of stuff. It's so much easier 
to include them because we have opened the net so wide from the beginning. Yeah. And it's really fun because I had all these big plans in place and then COVID hit. I had to like take a step back because there's a lot of things we couldn't achieve because with the pandemic, funding dries up. You can't ask people to support in any way. I mean, in 2019, we did a fundraising campaign and it was really successful and we would have repeated it last year, but I was like, I can't do a fundraising campaign when people are trying to put food on their table. It doesn't mm. make any sense. Totally. Um, so we had to put a lot of plans on pause, but we were doing like interactive workshops and panels and all that kind of stuff. And we will get back to that. We try to do as much online as possible, but I think that there's also like an online exhaustion that's happened because everyone moved everything to online. So mm. now it's like you're in a Zoom, then you're in a Teams meeting, then you're in a dis Discord call, and then you're this and this and this. And it gets very overwhelming. And you don't kind of want to be lost in that and waste your opportunities when there's so much happening. So right now, the network is focused on sharing as many resources that come from global and from other organizations and finding grants and sharing job opportunities and kind of connecting people to support each other as yeah. much as possible until we're in a position where we can kind of kick things into another gear. So just support each other, you know? Yeah, totally. But the thing, the other thing is, is like everything that you do for the network is completely voluntary. It's amazing when people want to and are able to share their time, but you can't expect anything from people because there is no funding and there isn't that money and anything that we do make or raise either goes to gets donated or gets used towards another project. So even me, like this is, this falls into like the legacy part of my life where I do this because it's important and I know that it's going to benefit like future generations. I didn't choose to do this because I thought there was going to be a fat check attached to it at any point. Like no. that's not what the goal is here. It's kind of how do I invest in people? How do I get other people to invest? And that's quite hard to like put a boundary on that where people expect a lot of you when you have to do your job, manage your career and do all of this and then still invest in things like this, which means so much to you, but there's only so much left in your cup. Yeah, you also have to sometimes step back and be like, can I just have a moment? And that was quite difficult during lockdown because lockdown was like this whole roller coaster of emotions. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I've got two months to like do stuff. But there were days when I was like, this is really difficult mm -hmm. because I'm going through like a grieving period of what my life was literally a few weeks ago and how drastically it's changed. It's quite hard to be like positive and upbeat and try to keep everyone else in a good mood mm -hmm. when, you know, you're literally thinking about all of that at the same time. So, yeah, that's kind of what we do, what we're trying to do and what we hope to continue doing in the future. You mentioned how you are quite divided at the moment. Let's talk about you for a second. Let's talk about your cup. Mm, if yeah. you were to look at your <laughs> career as a timeline, could you give me three to five highlights that would give context to listeners who aren't familiar with you, your music or your activism? For sure. So it's so interesting because there's some things that you, if you're not constantly taking stock of your achievements and especially when you do a lot of things and it's been quite some time, you forget about amazing moments. So, mm. But I like remembering interesting things. And there's also sometimes when I'm like, wow, I forgot that I did this. So I think the first thing I'm going to say is completely selfish because it's like one of the best moments I've ever had in my entire career. 
And it happened in 2012 at Opikopi um, when I played on the Red Bull stage. It was my first time playing on an electronic stage at any festival in the country. Yeah. And it was like, that was already a big deal for me, you know. Before this, I'd played at Opikopi, but I just played at Top Bar, which was, is an experience in its own. Yeah. But this was like the first, like, legit slot. And then they released the lineup and it was me and then Cybot uh-huh. and then Diplo. <laughs> that was the order. And I was like, I am going to die. <laughs> so I got to play like two just before Diplo and I played. And when I started playing, what I didn't know was that they, emptied out the whole of backstage because Diplo wanted some prep time. So he wanted only the artists who were going to be playing after him were allowed backstage. Yeah. So while I'm playing, everyone's like jamming. It's like the most people I've ever played to in my entire career. Such a surreal experience. And I come off stage and I walk backstage into the tent and Diplo's sitting at a table with his headphones on in front of a laptop. Oh. And my friend Kyle, Das Capital, was sitting on a couch because he was playing after Diplo. And he came right into me and he's like, yo, yo, that was such a good set. He's like, Diplo asked about you while you were playing. And I was like, shut up. No ways. That's so <laughs> And nice. I went, I walked to the Rebel fridge to go get a drink. And as I opened the fridge, he took his headphones off and he looked up and he said, can I please have one of those? And I was like, duh, of course. So I hand him a Red Bull and he goes, was that you playing just now? And I went, yes. And he goes, that was really good. Well done. And I literally froze. I like died. I went like corpse mode (sighs) that I walked out of the tent without a drink for myself. And I didn't know what was going on. And I got outside and I was just like, what just happened? What just happened? Because this is like literally the first major proper thing that I'd done. And I've been like, done all of my residencies and I'd built up to this point. It was, it blew my mind. Not only did he talk to me, but he listened to my set and he complimented me. And I was like, I don't think people really understand that no one has to say those things to you. Yeah. Whether they're like the smallest artist or the biggest artist, no one has to tell you that you did a good job. Like they do that because they really want to. Like everyone's super excited to criticize you when you mess up, but compliments aren't that easy to get out of people. And that like made my whole year was such a special feeling. And I kind of, for the next few years, held on to that. Every time someone tried to criticize me or told me that I like, you know, couldn't do something or that I wasn't the right kind of DJ, wasn't going to be successful in whatever element, I just kind of went back to that moment. And I was like, you know what? Diplo thinks I'm cool. So I don't care what you think. (laughs) That's wonderful. I like that as a little energy moment. I mean, that's almost nine years ago and I still remember it crystal clear like it happened last week. And that's really special to me. Yeah. I know it's going to be hard to top that with the rest <laughs> of them. I mean, do you have <laughs> anything that tops that? In different ways. Cause that's like a huge celebrity surreal moment. Mm. I definitely a highlight was like, I'd never considered radio in any formats. I had a friend who studied drama and did like a course for radio and was like doing graveyard shifts on local radio and all of that. And she was pushing to be like a radio host. And then for a number of reasons, all of that kind of fell apart and she had to pivot. And while this was happening, the assembly radio station started 
and they approached me and offered me a show. Yeah. And I was like, I've never even considered doing radio. Like, my friend's the radio person. But I was like, yeah, why not? Let's give it a try. And it was so much fun. And then because of that, again, the same person who introduced me to She Said So, through She Said So, someone from Reform Radio in Manchester was looking for a South African DJ to create a South African-focused music show for Reform Radio. And so through the She Said So network, it was referred to me. And I did like a demo show and they ate it up. Mm. And I've been doing that monthly since like the end of 2016. And I pre-record it and I send it off and it's 100% South African music every single month. And it gets streamed out of Manchester on Reform Radio. And then last year, I started a show on the other radio out of Cape Town for She Said So. Yeah. where we only play women and LGBTQ plus music. And then every second show, we have a guest that we interview that's part of our community. And we talk to them about what they do. So now I have two radio shows because of how that started. And that's super exciting for me because I really enjoy being able to share this music with like people who I'll never meet, you know. They'll just hear it. They'll listen to it. They'll go find the artist, hopefully. But I'll never know who these people are and it's such a like a stark contrast to playing shows where you see the faces of the people and you see their reactions when you're playing the music mm. whereas like radio just like podcasts and all of that you know someone's listening but you never get to see their reaction you never get to have that experience with them so you kind of just have to create this magical world where you think that everyone loves what you released <laughs> and live in that magical bubble and be like, I'm amazing and everyone loves everything that I do, you know? Yeah. So like radio is a super highlight. I mean, your voice is so likable. Your voice makes me <laughs> want to be your friend. Oh, thanks. Well, I would love to be your friend. I'm so glad about that. I was going to ask you if you'd be my friend afterwards. <laughs> no, definitely. And now that we know that we're both in Joburg, it's so much easier. <laughs> Tell me your next highlight. So we thought we couldn't top Diplo, but then six years later, in 2018, just before I had started moving to Johannesburg, I'd seen the application process for TEDx Cape Town. Wow. I was in this phase, you know, when you decide to up and leave a city, you're like throwing caution to the wind. You're like, I am invincible. I can do anything. So I was in that mind frame and I was like, let me apply to do a TEDx talk because why not? I'm a badass. Plus... If they say no, I wasn't doing one anyway, so it's not that much of a loss, you know? Mm. Fill out the form online. Think of a topic off the top of my head. Not thinking that I'm not going to get a copy of this application form and I should maybe try and remember (gasps) what I wrote. Don't do that. So just like slam a subject in there. Do a brief little garble at the bottom. Send. That's it. Forget about it. Literally a month before I moved to Joburg, finally, I get a confirmation email saying that my topic has been selected for an audition for TEDx Cape Town. Oh my God. And I was like, well, this sucks because I'm moving. But I was like, I'll still do it anyway. So I replied to them and I was like, I'm moving to Johannesburg, but can I still do this? Because like, I never in a million years thought I'd be able to do a TED talk of any kind, Mm. but I still want this opportunity. And they were like, it's cool. It's fine. There's just like a bunch of workshops that you'll have to attend. (laughs) So then for the next few months, I had to fly down to Cape Town to do these workshops Mm. on Saturdays. So I would come for the weekend if I didn't have any shows in Joburg 
or I would like fly on the red eye first thing on a Saturday morning, go to the workshop and then fly back oh in God. the afternoon. So I could be back in time for a show. It was such an incredible experience. So I, I did my pitch. Mm -hmm. Luckily, when they emailed me, they told me my, what my topic was, which was super helpful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, this was a really good topic. This is why they chose me. The first one, you write your own pitch and then you have to present it. Mm. And then a couple of weeks later, they mail you and then go, you have been chosen or you haven't. So I made it to the second round. And that is when you sit through like a, a session where they teach you how to like focus your topic more and what that's going to look like. And then after you pitch that, when you get chosen from that round, you get paired with a coach and it's someone who has like Toastmaster and MC experience and who has done a TEDx talk before. Mm. And I got paired with such an amazing coach. She was really incredible. And I'd only think that I was successful because it was her, because she was so calming and every workshop we learned, I mean, we had, people coming in to teach us about like body language and all of these things. So like, honestly, paying for all of those flights and doing all of that was like paying for an education. I'm so comfortable like speaking in front of groups of people now mm. where I've always been good at talking to people. They just change how you approach not to be too overprepared. So, it, you know, because when you prepare too much, if you miss something, you can't compensate for that because you've like kind of stuck to a script inside of you. So they mm. teach you how to learn what you want to say, but don't be like married to it. So if you skip a few words, you can just kind of make something up in the theme and move on. And then and that's how you get back on track. Because as you know, TEDx, there's no teleprompters. There's no note cards, nothing like with TED Talks. You have to, whether you speak for five minutes or 15 minutes, it's all out of your brain. Amazing. And that was so daunting. My talk in the end was 11 minutes. And up until a week before, I couldn't remember a thing and I was starting to panic. I stopped drinking. I stopped partying for two weeks before the TEDx or to like clear my mind so that the only thing I stopped reading books, stopped watching series. I was like, nothing can be in my brain except for my TED talk. And then all of a sudden the night before I was walking up and down and I was having a cigarette and I was pacing and I said my whole talk without time. blinking oh. for the like for the first time and I was like well this is very convenient seeing that oh. it's the night before I'm so grateful and then I did it again and then I did it again and then I took a break went and had a shower came back and I did it again without faltering and I was like oh my god it's in there it's in my head it's not gonna go away anymore it's in there and that was like so empowering because I was like, you can't mess with me now. Like yeah. there's 11 minutes of really good content imprinted in my brain. And I didn't even listen to music on the airplane or anything. I was like, nothing's going to get in the way of having this in my brain. If I can tell you those 11 minutes was like an out of body experience. The talk was on diversity, inclusion and safety in the South African music industry. That is a great topic. Yeah. And I, it's so nice because I had like men who I know in the industry message me saying like they showed the video to like their whole team, like promoters, people who do events and work in the event industry, like showed their team the video. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm like a whole ass resource now. That's amazing. Honestly, like TED Talk was definitely on the bucket list. Yeah. And so I got to do that. That's incredible. Can't wait to check it out. 
which I mean leads us so nicely into the next section. Could you talk a bit about the extra hurdles that women and the LGBTQ plus community have had to and still have to overcome within the music industry? I really like this question. It's not your standard women and gender minority question. It's a very important one because just before the pandemic hit, there was this huge virtue signaling industry chatter about diversity and inclusion because people were starting to get very frustrated. Like 2020 was the year for like activism and rioting that people were like going for stuff. Mm. And so the conversations locally, especially in the electronic music scene was you need to stop booking men and you need to stop having so many white lineups as well. It's all men and it's predominantly white and it's unacceptable. And you have foreign promoters coming into the country, throwing events and not booking the right demographic of people. Mm -hmm. And then you have local promoters flying in white European artists and spending massive budgets on artists and not supporting local artists. And it was very frustrating. And so there was this like performative effort to be like, yeah, we'll do better this year. We will start widening the pool of consideration and we'll look for more artists who are queer and who are women and artists of color and all of that. And it was all words, right? And then the pandemic hits and the minutes the lockdown eased and you were allowed to do events again. I mean, I even made a joke about it on Twitter. I said, one of the symptoms no one's speaking about, they speak about loss of taste and loss of smell, but no one's talking about the loss of memory that people are suffering because clearly no one's remembered that they promised to have more diverse lineups. Like the minute party started, it was the same dudes booking their friends, forgetting anyone else existed. Mm. You're always at the end of the queue, the bottom of the selection. The sad part is that, We are already so far behind as an industry in comparison to the rest of the world. And people don't take that into consideration. We're only part of the rest of the world since 1994, right? Yeah. So that's when our music industry technically, as it stands now, started. Mm. Heavily in its infancy in comparison to other industries. You have a government that doesn't support the creative arts in any way, Mm. doesn't see it as important. And then you have so much gatekeeping and so much resource hoarding and all of these people who think that they're so important that they get to decide who gets opportunities and who doesn't get opportunities. And the future of our industry is wrapped up in all of that. And there's like a few ways that independent artists can push back against that Mm -hmm. and it's going to be difficult but I think now more than ever because we've gone through this period where we haven't been able to play shows and we've had to diversify and change how we behave it's probably a little bit easier to convince people of this but the minute things open up and you can start playing shows don't play shows for people who don't care about diversity and inclusion don't take a show just because you need a show like say no to those people and build your allies around you who will also say no to those people because when they lose support they lose their power and that leaves room for the people who have good intentions and will do good for this industry to step forward but you can't step forward while there's someone blocking the way who's the good guy how do we know i think it's pretty easy it's a lot easier than you realize when important conversations happen it's the people who 
blatantly stay quiet because they think if you don't say anything, that means that you haven't picked a side. Mm. When a conversation is important and you keep quiet, you are complicit in the wrong side of it. Mm. That's as simple as that. Especially now, like, I think we've already proven that people who threaten to like end your career, if you speak up, they don't have that kind of power. That's not a thing that can happen. Mm. And I think more people need to understand that and feel supported in that way. Where like, if someone says, if you say something, I will make sure you never play in this town ever again. It's like, okay, cool. But if I do say something, you will never be able to work in this town again because you are the abuser, you are the gatekeeper, you are the corrupt person who's stealing opportunities. And I said, it's difficult. I mean, it's so much easier to speak about it than it is to take action. But I think because we've been on this break for so long, we can realize that we've had to find other ways to make money. We've had to find other ways to survive. You can't go back into the old habits. You cannot support people who don't back diversity and inclusion. You've got it. All of the men that you know who are in the industry that work around you have to come out as staunch allies of this movement so that they also cut off from all of these people Mm -hmm. and can use their influence to drive the old ways out because that's where it really counts is if you have a unity behind you. It's a boys club, the music industry. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I look at the local folk festivals I've played, the lineups have been very male-dominated. Is it the same in the DJ community? Yeah, it's very much the same. I mean, when I think back, when I started DJing, I only knew one other woman that was a DJ. And she was like a legend already because she was part of the African Dope crew, Honey Bee. Yeah. Right? And she was so well respected and she'd been doing it for so long. I couldn't find like a mentor or someone for like years because I wasn't exposed to women in my industry. It's much better now. Because the younger generation, they literally like love Gen Z so much because one day they decide I want to learn how to DJ and then they go to their guy friends who have a controller and they're like, two weeks later, they're playing at their friend's party. I love that. And I encourage that so much. But yes, across the board, all industries, you've got, as I say, men who gatekeep, men who make all of the decisions. Because they've always been there. You know, I think the biggest move that we've seen in the music industry towards better representation was when George handed over Rocking the Daisies to Zetu and her team. Yeah. So that three women are running the festival. That was huge. And it was huge for many reasons. Not only because those three women deserve that position, so much and are the ones who are doing the most work every single year anyway. But it signals to the rest of the industry that this is not only possible, it's necessary and nothing's going to fall apart if you give people the opportunity based on their hard work and based on merit. It's pretty simple. The amount of times I've heard across my career, wow, you're really good for like a woman. Oh, yikes. I was actually thinking about it the other day. Things that were intended as a compliment, but years later, when you understand complexities of things much more, you understand that it was not only not a compliment, but it was actually just not acceptable to say something like that. I was playing a show in Cape Town at an event called Cold Turkey, which used to happen 
once a month on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. It's like an underground, like UK dubstep party. Like it was packed to the brim all the time. If you got to play that party, you know that like people were paying attention to your career. And I got to play a show and they had this guy from the UK who was the headliner of the show. And I was going to play after him. So he played and I jumped on. And I played like the first 10 minutes and he was like so overwhelmed because like it got like a good crowd reaction and, and did like a rewind on the track and he jumped on the mic and he was like, oh, make some noise, blah, 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 and, like trying to ha- hype me up until he said, I've never seen a woman do this before. <laughs> so no. well, I can't believe it. Over the microphone in front of like 500 people. Oh my God. And obviously everyone's like, woo. And I was like. Oh my God, you think I'm so good for a girl. I didn't think that, but like you, that's how you want me to take this compliment. And I was thinking about it this weekend. I was like, wow, that's not a thing that you should say to people. Yeah. It's really not okay. And I think that's what it is. It's like, it's such a condescending view on like women being successful in a traditionally male industry. Mm. It's like, oh, look, you made it. You made it. You fought off all the demons. You slayed the dragon. You should be (laughs) proud of yourself. Whereas like all you're doing is highlighting how uneven you made the playing field. I'd literally have to jump over obstacles to prove myself just so that you can still tell me I'm only good enough as the woman version of this. Yeah. I've worked fought for this and you still want to specify that I'm the top woman at this and that you won't actually give me a ranking with my peers who are men. You will never be able to say, actually, you're really the best at this out of everyone. You're like, oh, you're the best woman at this. Just a little little fun fact side note. Tell me. Do you know why men's buttons and women's buttons on shirts are on different sides? No. Okay, so back when buttons were first introduced to clothing, it was also the time when women didn't undress themselves because like their clothing was so intricate and hectic. And so the only person who had undressed themselves was men would take their own clothes off. But then if men had to help their wives take their clothes off, the buttons would be in a different direction if they were the same. So they had to do it opposite so the man could still get it in the direction as if he was taking it off of himself. And it stayed like that ever since. So basically our buttons on the other side because they were designed for someone to take them off of us, usually our husband's. And they were incapable of discerning the opposite side. So they made the the world more convenient for a man. <laughs> and it's never changed. <laughs> Yo, you represent other artists, don't you? Yes. And it's been an interesting experience because obviously different artists behave differently. And I've had to end some relationships because people are lazy and don't do what they need to do and then blame it on me when I'm like, I can't book you shows if you literally don't release any music or don't engage with your audience. No one's going to care about you. How do you expect me to get you like a newspaper article when you're not doing any work, you know? So it's been like interesting. I've worked with some amazing artists. My latest roster has been adapted because the minute that lockdown hit and I saw how everything was going, I just said to a couple of them, I was like, now's the time for you to kind of take control of what you're doing because you won't be able to play shows for a while, but that means you can get like a strong handle on your career Mm -hmm. and really get in control of what you're doing. And I never want to stand in the way of that. And there's nothing of use that I can do for you while they're on shows. So I don't want you to feel like tied down to me just because I have been working with you. 
and my position has always been I like working with like burgeoning artists who just need like a little leg up mm. to learn how to be like a little bit more organized and get people to take them more seriously. So like I'll come on board with you when you need to like up your fees and get people to treat you more professionally and like establish that new reputation. And then if there's someone else that comes along who's able to take you a step higher, go with well wishes. You know what I mean? Mm. I'm pro artist. Yes. I don't take like a huge percentage. I only ever take like in my first year is like I take 10% and then after that I go up to 5% and the max I'll do is 20%. But that's usually when I'm like slipping into manager duties and not just agent duties. But I mean, it's just interesting because it's also, it's not a perfect science, you know, it's very difficult to manage a whole bunch of people's lives and manage your own life. But sometimes it's as simple as sending contracts, answering emails, all of that kind of stuff. And then other times it's like, I was working with an artist who some guy from America was trying to work with her on something and he seemed dodgy because of the time difference. He would phone me at like 11 p.m. at night because he was in America and like talk shit to me for like an hour. And I was like, I don't want this for myself. Yes. I don't want to be arguing with some dude from America at 11 p.m. at night about things that are never going to happen. Mm. And I was right because it never panned out <laughs> into anything. I think that's when my shift started changing in my mind. I was like, you know what? As much as I love working with artists and helping them where I can, I'd rather do it on like a, if you need me, I'm here to help you basis, rather than this is a strict contractual thing. Because people also need to learn how to be autonomous. And I think creative people struggle with that. Yes. Because when you're a creator, you're like, free-spirited and like paperwork doesn't matter and like responsibility meh. you know like that's kind of how it's glamorized yeah if you look at the most successful creative people in the world like the super successful people they know what their teams are doing and the times when artists don't know what their teams are doing is when their business manager runs off with all of their royalties from the last 10 years yeah and they find out that they actually signed a paper that said it was okay. So I've always had like transparency and education and upliftment with anyone I work with. It all ties together so beautifully because what you said now now about telling your artists that it's the time to get a strong handle on your career because that's exactly what it feels like. So now how can people get in touch with you or find out more about what you're up to? Social media links, websites, that kind of thing. Okay, so I'll make it easy. My most active platforms are Instagram and Twitter. Okay. Twitter is where there's a lot of conversation happening around a lot of things. Twitter is where Chad first was born. And then Instagram is a lot of like my creative stuff. It used to be very obviously gig and music based, but now it's more to do with my day job and like things that I make and create. And I share a lot of resources and opportunities in my stories. And they both Cult of Ange. So C-U-L-T-O-F-A-N-G. Amazing. Cult of Ange. Before we say goodbye, who are mm. we playing the show out with? Oh, yes. Awesome. Um, so Rose Bonica, Natalie, is a dear friend of mine. And she learned how to be a producer years ago. It was in 2016. I actually gave her her first live performance she's an electronic music producer but she plays her music live okay and her very first show that she ever played was at fiction 
and she killed it and she's really amazing and her music has changed over the years as she's honed her skills the song that i'm sharing with you is of her debut album which came out last year called tears for the tea maker and the song is called your mother never taught you manners i love this because it's got like that very like grungy 90 electronica kind of vibe you know yeah. like the trip hoppy but a little bit more like edgy and yeah it's just super nostalgic for me but it came out last year and she's incredible she works super hard she's gotten a lot of like international play and and coverage in the last few months because she's working with an amazing PR agency in Europe but also her music is outstanding and she's getting all of the right attention and she has taken advantage of the time that she can't play shows to put all of her efforts into reaching the world because it is so well connected now because everyone's living online and she's maximized all of her opportunities I can't say enough good things about her. She's really amazing. And Yay. I think you're going to love the song. Yay. Thank you so much for coming in to chat. It's an absolute pleasure. I really loved this. I really loved this. Such a good conversation to have. Thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. There's so much important stuff here. And I'm totally going to make you be my friend anyway off the show. Yes. No, for sure. I've got your phone number. <laughs> it's in your email. So it I'll is. drop you a message. <laughs> and then, yeah, definitely... <laughs> This was special. Well, thank you. I'm honored that you came to chat. If you are an indie artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on Instagram at Shotgun Tori. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.
Mother should have taught you math. 